majesty. You are the risen King. God, what a joyful and beautiful noise it is to sing with your church, to worship you, God. Father, I pray as Chris comes and teaches from your word, from your truth, God, I pray that we would not leave this place the same as we walked in tonight, this morning, rather. God, I pray that we would leave changed, molded, and crafted to look more like you, God. God, you are beautiful. God, we can sing that. We can sing hallelujah to you because you have won the victory for us, God. Death couldn't hold you down. You've conquered the grave, Father, and that's something to rejoice in. Amen. God, so we worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, that's what's so wonderful about praise and worship. When we sing the truths of God, no matter where we're at, maybe we're just a hair above okay or good, or maybe we're in the dumps, or maybe at the peak, but when we sing those truths of God, it moves the needle of our life. And it shows us more of who God is. See, we need to be reminded of who God, see God doesn't forget who he is, it's not like we're like, hey God, don't forget, but we forget, in the midst of our circumstances, we start to interpret God through our circumstances, and we have to remind ourselves, and that's why we sing the truths of God, and that's why we learn the truths of God through his scripture, and so with that in mind, I'd ask you to open your Bibles, if you say word, I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bible, uh, flip around the pages, or navigate on your phone or device to Acts chapter 4, we're picking up right where we left off, now over the last few years, as you find that your place in the scriptures. Over the last few years, my boys have become fascinated with the Harry Potter book series. Uh, it was just last year that my oldest son, eldest son, finished uh, the entirety of the series, and I told him every book he finished, we could watch the movie. I say we, he could watch the movie. After two or three movies, I was like, dude, you're on your own. But he loved them, apparently, and uh, it's, a, it's a conversation piece in our house. They're always talking about ha Harry Potter. I'm always on the outside looking in. They're always talking about these spells and these particular places. Uh, but even I know uh, one of the characters. In fact, he is he who must not be named. In fact, um, this particular person, just the mention of his name, it's forbidden in the Harry Potter world. Don't say it. Uh, he is the one who must not be named. His name is synonymous with evil and treachery and deceit and even death. And I'm told that the very mention of his name can summon death, death itself. Okay, go ahead. Say, what's his name? Mango. Don't. <laughs> Stick with the illustration, Stephen. Yes, the answer to every single question in church is Jesus. But this particular question is, the answer is, now be careful. Let's say his name out loud. Uh, well, here's, here's the reason why I bring that up, and this is why I find it fascinating. We're living in a day and time when the one we worship has become, in our culture, he who must not be named. We can talk about God. We can talk about certain aspects of mysticism, philosophy of spiritualism. We can be spiritual people. But there is one name that must not be named. He is to be avoided. Uh, specifically in classrooms and boardrooms and the halls of academia and in cultural media, just the mention of his name will bring the subsequent eye rolls and potential trips to the human resources department and maybe even a termination letter. 
Now, it's very troubling to me because there's power in His name. There's power to heal and there's power to save. In fact, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Just the very mention of His name can summon life itself. Add on top of that, as His followers, we are literally commanded to take His name and His message to the world, which leaves us at an incredibly difficult crossroads. In fact, the exact same crossroads that the two apostles we've been following over the past few weeks are, are going to have to stand, where they're going to have to stand. Peter and John, as you all remember, have, have been now preaching the gospel in the temple, and, and they're going to be challenged to make a choice. Either they are going to keep preaching his name, or they are going to stand against the higher authority of Jerusalem and culture or they will give in and cease to speak his name. We are faced with very similar crossroads. I hope we are able to discover better how to face that situation in this day and time. Acts chapter 4 verse 1 picks up where we left off last, last week. It says, and they were speaking to the people. Who are they? Peter and John, right? They afforded the opportunity to preach the gospel because of the man who had been born crippled, lame in his feet for 40 plus years, had been unable to walk, lay daily at the gate called Beautiful. As you remember, Peter said, look at me. Silver and gold I have not, but what I have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man rose. He leaped to his feet. And they entered the temple, praising, leaping, giving glory to God. And a huge crowd gathered at what is called Solomon's Portico on the east side of the general common area of the temple, and they began to gather and ask, what does this mean? Peter then was given the opportunity to preach. Well, it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. Why? Two reasons. One, they were teaching. Uncom or common, untrained, uneducated men were teaching in the temple. That was a problem for them. And secondly, they were teaching in the name of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Verse 3, they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And as you remember from last week, the crux of Peter's message was simple. Jesus is the Messiah. Israel was guilty of putting their Messiah to death. In fact, as Peter is preaching, he's speaking to a gathering of people who a few months prior had cried out for the blood of Jesus. He says, you've killed your Messiah, but God glorified his son by raising him from the dead as foretold in the scriptures. In fact, Peter preached for a purpose. He says, all who believe will be saved. All who reject him will be condemned. Because not only did Jesus rise from the dead, not only did he ascend, he was exalted to the highest place in heaven and he will return to establish his rule on planet earth. All who believe, their sins will be blotted out and their wickedness will be forgiven. Now in the middle of his message, the religious elite descended upon them and took them into custody as we just read. They were annoyed, they were irked and irritated. These commoners were teaching in the name of Jesus and so they arrested them and put them in a holding cell on the outer perimeter of the temple. They scheduled a court hearing for the morning. They wanted them to stop preaching the name of Jesus. And the reason they didn't want them to continue to preach in the name of Jesus is because they didn't want belief in Jesus to spread. Family, that is the same thing that is motivating our culture and why we are being conditioned to not speak the name of Jesus. 
so that the belief in Jesus will not spread. But verse 4 tells us what happened. It says, but many of those who heard the word believed. You cannot stop it. It's like trying to put out a grease fire with water, which I've learned from experience doesn't work very well. But many of those who have heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. We did the arithmetic and came to discover that the church in a very short, uh, short period of time has just gone from 120 spirit-filled believers to now roughly 15,000. It's out of control, and these, these men are about control, and so they're trying to bring order to the chaos. Turn to verse 5. It opens in the next morning. Peter and John have spent the night in jail. I have spent the night in jail. It's not a fun place for them. They were there for an entirely different reason. And I believe they probably spent that night in prayer and in worship. Maybe even gratitude. You may think this is a crazy thought. They were probably grateful for the privilege of suffering just a little bit for Jesus. It says on the next day there are rulers and elders and scribes gathered together at Jerusalem. We get the who and the where with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Of course, we all know who those people are, but uh, just give us an understanding of what Luke is referencing here as he writes of these people. He's talking about the, the hierarchy, the elite. Okay, This is what's called the Sanhedrin. It was the ruling party. Uh, what passed the Sanhedrin was law in the land, very similar to the Supreme Court in that way. The apostles are going to stand before 70 of the most powerful men in Jerusalem. And they're being put on trial for two reasons. One, for preaching the name of Jesus, and two, for the miraculous healing of the man. Can you imagine being put on trial for healing somebody in the name of Jesus? Well, look at verse 7. It says, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name? Did you do this? I love this. They're literally affording the opportunity for Peter to preach the gospel. So by what power and by what name? Peter's like, really? Awesome. You know, he's like, this is so rad. Oh my gosh, thank you, Lord. He's able to preach to the masses and now to the teaching, teachers of the masses. Family, when you're living for Christ, you're going to speak to commoners and elite alike. And you know what? And you preach Jesus when you get there. It says in verse 8, then Peter filled with what? Filled with who? The Holy Spirit. That tells us that Peter is filled with the Spirit of God. That's what he's going to speak is the Word of God. It reminds me of in the Gospels where Jesus had told the disciples, do not prepare what you're going to speak when you're put on trial for my name. I will give you the words to speak. Jesus is literally going to speak in and through Peter. In and through the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be like Jesus is standing in their presence and speaking to them. He said to them, rulers of the people and the elders, he first shows respect. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Well, let me tell you. Let it be known to all of you that, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by the way, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He's like, hey, you know the one you killed? Yeah, that guy. That woman that was buried, the one that has risen from the dead, yeah, in his name, by the power of his name, this man has been healed. I find it fascinating that the Sanhedrin at this moment did not produce the body of Jesus. Do any of you find that fascinating? None of them interrupted this testimony by Peter and went, ah, that whole resurrection story, we've been able to disprove that. Why were they not able to disprove it? 
Because the dude rose from the dead. Now I have said dude, rad, and awesome. Gnarly. There you go, Bella Boo. Gnarly. Just watching some surfer videos. I'm just getting called back to my stomping grounds. Seeing it on TV. Gnarly. Uh, the one you killed, he is the Messiah. He is the one that has power. They're not able to produce a body because there is no body. Because Jesus rose from the dead. He goes on to say this, this Jesus whom is risen, who healed this man, he is the true Messiah. Peter is about to get downright biblical. He's going to quote right out of Psalm 118. I find it fascinating that this, this guy Peter, who had a Nike-shaped mouth, man, he was always sticking his foot in his mouth in the Gospels. He was always just stammering and trying to say the right thing and always messing up. All of a sudden, he's got such poise. He's arguing theologically and biblically. This man has changed. Verse 11, this Jesus, the one you have put to death, the one has, who has risen, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the, what is that word? Cornerstone. That word can be interpreted two ways, either cornerstone or capstone. Both important in ancient architecture. I'll explain both to you. First, the cornerstone, as this particular version renders it, a cornerstone was the most important stone in the building of a building. It would be first laid, and the entire building itself would be set true to that particular stone, thus making it the most important stone of the foundation. The capstone, as some versions render it, was the last stone that was placed into an arch, and so an arch would be constructed, and the last stone that would hold the entire arch in place would be the capstone. Some would argue capstone, some cornerstone. I say Jesus is both. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation of the church and the, the structure that God is building in his body on planet earth. But he is also the capstone, the completing work of God on planet earth. But he's not just the cornerstone or the capstone, as we see here in this text. He is also the stumbling stone. These men tripped over Jesus. These builders, i.e. the religious elite, rejected their Messiah. And just in case there was any confusion, and maybe any confusion in our minds as to who in the nature of Christ, verse 12, and there is salvation in no other name. There is salvation in no other name. Say that with me. There is salvation in no other name other name. That is about an, as absolute a statement as you're going to find anywhere in the scripture as to the salvation of the soul. The salvation of a life. There's salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. I've been following a, a particular uh, discussion on Facebook. I uh, found it just fascinating. I've been reading it and following the posts and the interaction. It is, it is filled with the argument of the agnostic and the atheist. And I, I just find the arguments fascinating. And one of the arguments that one of this uh, particular blogger is, is presenting is that there are 3,000 gods. What makes you say that Jesus is the only saved, the only way to be saved is Jesus? Out of this pantheon of 3,000 gods, how can you say you are worshiping the true God? Well, I'll get to that in just a moment as far as why I believe that and 
I pray you do also, because family, there's salvation in no other name. There's no other God that can save you. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved, because Jesus is the Messiah. He is also the Savior of the world. That Greek word that is translated as salvation in the scripture is the Greek word soteria, soteria. And that word particularly means deliverance from, preservation in, and safety through. It is a, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Okay, we have a salvation that begins when we receive him. We have a preservation through this life, and then we have safety on into death in our eternity. In fact, it gets even greater than that. In Christ, we experience what is described as a fourfold salvation. A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink, writes this. What we experience, soteria. This is, this is a great, great description of soteria. It is the full, fourfold salvation. We are saved from the penalty, power, presence, and most importantly, the pleasure of sin. In Christ, there is salvation, a fourfold salvation. I will describe it a little further. There's no other name given under heaven that can save you and save us from the penalty of sin. Class, what is the penalty of sin? It is death. The Bible declares that the wages of sin is death. That when man and woman sinned and fell from God, God said, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And it's not just a physical death, that is a spiritual death, that is a relational and psychological death. There is no other name, there is no other person under heaven that can save you from the penalty of sin. There is no one else who can set you free from the power of sin, the grip of sin on our lives. That person who can break the chains is Jesus. Jesus is the bondage breaker. There's no other name under heaven that can break the chains of bondage. He is the one that can break the presence of sin in our life. That is relational death. That when we do not have a relationship with Christ, when we are not in a saved relationship, we are not at peace with God. I'll hear people tell me that they have a great relationship with God, but they don't believe in Jesus. And I'm like, your, your original presupposition is wrong. You do not have a great relationship with God rejecting Jesus. You have no relationship. You are not at peace. You are at enmity with God. It is God who destroys the presence of sin and then the pleasure of sin. Y'all, is sin fun? Come on, be honest. Thank you, Stephen. Everyone else is like, oh, I don't, I mean, I don't, it's not that fun. I mean, I, it's kind of fun, sort of fun. But when I'm in church, no, it's terrible. No, it's fun. Sin is pleasurable. But you know what? When God sets us free, when Christ saves us, when we experience true soteria, sin is no longer as pleasurable as it once was. It shouldn't be. There should be conviction. We can still turn to it, but it's not as fun as it used to be. If sin is as fun as it's always been, and it's still just as fun as it always ever has been in your life, chances are you're not truly experiencing soteria, because when you experience soteria, sin loses its luster. It's not as fun as it once was. It's not as pleasurable as it once was. Only Christ can allow us to experience that kind of salvation. Jesus is the only one who has conquered death through resurrection. No other God has done that. He is the only one who is the bondage breaker. No other God can do that. Do that. He is the only one who can restore our relationship with God and with others. No other God can do that. And the only one who can heal the addictive and often compulsive nature of our sin junkiness. 
pleasure-seeking that we strive for, coming to discover that there's only satisfaction found in Christ alone. Amen? Only Jesus can do that. Well, these powerful men are now left with a profound choice. To either receive the message of Jesus, believe and be saved, or reject the message of Jesus, disbelieve and remain separated from God, and continue to stumble over the capstone, the cornerstone, the stumbling stone. And in this, I discover... One of the hardest substances on earth, yes, diamond, it's used to cut through lesser and softer softer substances, but really the hardest substance on earth, family, is a hardened heart. There's nothing tougher than that. Nothing can break through a hardened heart. Argument cannot break through a hardened heart. Church attendance cannot break through a hardened heart. The only thing that can break through the hardened heart is the word of God can pierce it. Because the word of God is sharp. The only thing that can soften a a hardened heart is God's grace and his mercy. That is what broke through my hardened heart. How's your heart today? Renee's like, it's good. (laughs) But I'd imagine in a group this size, there are probably some hardened hearts represented. Verse 13, they're left speechless. This is fascinating. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They were amazed. And it is pretty amazing, the transformation of these two guys from the Gospels and now to the book of Acts. They recognized they had been with Jesus. It was like Jesus was speaking in and through them. They're like, we've encountered something like this before. They've been with Jesus. I wonder if that's what people say about us when they meet us. Do people recognize the transformation of Jesus in your life that they can say they have been with Jesus? This, by the way, is derogatory. This is not complimentary. They're not appreciating the preaching of Peter and John. Nonetheless, seeing the man that was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. The miracle literally quieted them, their mouths. They had nothing to say. In fact, they're encountering two profound miracles. The first miracle, the incredible miracle, is first... Two uneducated, untrained commoners who had spent time with Jesus had been powerfully transformed into bold and courageous preachers of truth. That's a profound miracle. Two uneducated, untrained commoners who had spent time with Jesus had been powerfully transformed into bold and courageous preachers of truth. And the second incredible miracle is this man born lame been crippled for over 40 years, now stood in front of them completely healed. And there's nothing that they could say. And and so at this moment, they're like, okay, let's get rid of these guys. We need to talk. Verse 15, um, they commanded them to leave the council and they conferred with one another. What are we going to do with these guys? Again, this is 70 of the most powerful men in all of Jerusalem. And they're like, this is kind of a problem. We know that guy. We used to walk by him at the beautiful gate. That guy, it's that same guy? Yeah, it's that same guy. And there's no doubt. In fact, look at this. For there, there, 
there's no doubt a notable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny this. We can't sweep it under the rug. We can't act like it hasn't happened. And it almost seems like these guys are on like the, just the edge, the, just the cusp of, of giving their life to Jesus and believing. Because it's evident that there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power to transform these men, and there's power to radically heal this guy. And what may seem like a willingness to even entertain the idea of faith in Jesus is, is only just a brief cent- a second. Because by verse 17, they've made a decision. That hardened heart. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Can you think about, just think about that for a moment, how crazy that sounds. In the name of Jesus, two untrained commoners have been radically transformed. A man has been healed. Wouldn't you think, unleash his name. Think of the countless people that can be healed and think of all the transformation that can happen. But you know what they would lose? Control. Jesus is a threat. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This is a troubling verse for many reasons. Once the Sanhedrin delivered a verdict, it would essentially become law. And it would set precedent for future action if the law was not adhered to. And I I need to make a strong statement here. Y'all need to hear this. Please listen. Please listen to this. While the Bible tells us to follow the law and to submit to authority, Romans chapter 13 is very, very clear. We are to submit to the authority that is placed over us. There are times when what Christ has commanded supersedes the law of the land. There are times when what Christ has commanded supersedes the law of the land. And here's what I mean by that. If it becomes illegal to talk about Jesus and share the gospel, we must break the law. If it becomes illegal to talk about Jesus and share the gospel, we must break the law. If it becomes illegal for us to gather in his name and to worship in his name, to be an ecclesia, a church, we must break the law. If it becomes illegal for us to possess, to study, to preach the scriptures, the Bible, we must break the law. If a law is enacted that goes against the clear teaching of scripture, specifically as it relates to the teaching of Christ to his followers, we must break the law. There are very few times, by the way, with all of that said, where civil disobedience is mandated. In fact, in most circumstances, we are commanded to follow the law of the land, even if we strongly disagree with it. At times, we strongly disagree with certain laws, and we so strongly disagree, we're like, well, God must disagree too. Be careful with that. That that type of heart usually happens around tax season. And I assure you, God does not share your sentiment. 
Render taxes to whom they are due. We may feel that way as we are entering into the highway. 65! God wouldn't want me to go 65. Why would he have given me a V8? So the line of reasoning goes. In this particular circumstance that we see in Acts chapter 4, civil disobedience was not only warranted, it was mandated. Verse 19, Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. See what he says there? See what they say? If it's right to listen to you, to man, or to God, you're going to have to be the judge of that. But here's what we're going to do. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's very polite, very clear. They relate to the Sanhedrin that they are going to preach in the name of Jesus. It's like those situations where somebody comes up to you and goes, do you recognize if you continue to preach in the name of Jesus, these consequences will ensue? And we have to look at people in the eye and go, whether it's right in the sight of man or in the sight of God, you must judge, but I have to continue sharing the name of Jesus. I can't stop. When they had further threatened them, verse 21, wagged their fingers at them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Trust me, class, they wanted to punish. And now they've set precedent. Punishment is coming. Nonetheless, they preached the name. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. There we go. There's the the time stamp. This is how we know how old this man who was healed was. 40 plus years, radically healed. A notable sign has been done, but now the apostles have been placed under the authority of the law of the land to no longer preach the name of Jesus. So the question is, where do they go from here? And as we'll see next week, they do not go into hiding. They do not flee Jerusalem. They go to pray. And you know what they pray for? Boldness, courage, and opportunity to continue preaching the name of Jesus of Jesus. I pray that we have a similar heart. Here are your applications for the morning. First, they had been with Jesus. It's a profound statement found in verse 13. There had been transformation. Very astounding aspect, or one of the astounding aspects of the men who were put on trial is not just that God healed a man through them, it is that two untrained, uneducated commoners could stand toe-to-toe theologically and with poise and then through the empowering of the Holy Spirit and boldly proclaim the truth. Family, things change when you spend time with Jesus. You will change in ways that you can't even imagine. Transformation happens when you spend time with Jesus. So remember, things start breaking. The penalty of sin, the presence and power of sin, the pleasure of sin. The words you speak and the way you live, it changes. And people stand back and go, they've been with Jesus. They may mean that derogatorily, but it is one of the most supreme compliments you could be paid in this culture. Second application is he who must not be named. (laughs) For whatever reason, Jesus is not welcome in our culture. Maybe he's a threat to conscience or the classroom or to culture as a whole. He's not welcome in the business world, academic world. Not 
welcome in movies and media, unless he's profitable. By the way, Christian movies have become profitable, so that's why we're seeing an uptick in Christian movies, thank goodness, because I was a little over watching, uh, what's that movie, Left Behind, over and over and over again, because that's all I watch at home, right? Because I'm a pastor. I know what movies you've been watching. Probably the same ones I am. But you can tell that Jesus is just not welcome in culture, right? Do you guys see that? We stand in a very unique time in history. There was a time when the name of Jesus was not only welcome, the teachings of Jesus and the Bible and the church itself was relevant, culturally accepted, welcomed in the public arena. Those times are no longer. And some of us want to sit on a stump and lament the good old days. Family, they were not that good. And I'll tell you what they did. They made us lazy. They made us apathetic. Apathetic. And I'm hoping that this challenge that we have from culture sharpens us, calls us to action. Often we are told that we can believe in Jesus, but we're not to proselytize. That is, we're not to preach or evangelize. We're not to try to persuade others to believe in Jesus. We're told to keep Jesus to ourselves. Can somebody please tell me what the problem is with that? We've been commanded to be witnesses to the entire world. We've literally been commanded that when we do not share the name of Jesus, we are literally operating in disobedience. It's one of those moments where we have to go, you know, whether to do this or not do this, if that's wrong in your eyes, I'm so sorry, but you know what, I'm going to have to obey God rather than you. Because I'm under a higher commissioning. And people will threaten, they'll be like, well, you might lose your paycheck. That's okay, he's given me eternity. Got some killer wealth waiting for me. It's going to be gnarly. See, in the Harry Potter world, the he who must not be named... Voldemort. That may be applicable in this, that world, but in this world, his name is the name that must be named. Jesus. We must share his name. You want to know why? And I pray that this is applicable to your life today. Because third and finally, there is life and no other name. His life brings with it, his name brings life. That's what I'm trying to say. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation and no other el- no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus can save us from the penalty, power, presence, and pleasure of sin. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. There's only one door, one entrance, one path, one hope. I hope you can appreciate the absolute nature of that statement. And you may be wrestling with that statement and going, how could Jesus be the only way? There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other way. He is the only hope. In in fact, Acts chapter 2 verse 21 says this, and it it has come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's the name of the Lord? Jesus is the Lord. All who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. What's the opposite of that? All who do not call upon the name of the Lord will be be what? 
will not be saved. There's not one person on earth that I am comfortable with them not hearing the gospel. There should not be one person in your office that you should be comfortable not sharing the gospel with in the sense of, oh, it's okay if they hear it or they don't hear it. There shouldn't be one child in your classroom, one neighbor, fellow customer at Starbucks, where we should be comfortable thinking to ourselves, it's okay if they don't hear the gospel. There shouldn't be one nation on earth that we should be comfortable with their destruction and thinking to ourselves, well, they don't need the gospel. I'm glad they don't hear it. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Family, we've been tasked with taking that name to the world. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you as your people. We testify that you are the Messiah of Israel. You are the Savior of the world. You are the Savior of our souls. You gave your life as a ransom for many. Gave yourself over to death on a tree, crushed on the cross, pierced, paying our debt in full. You were buried in the grave and you have risen from the dead. You have ascended and you are exalted above all rule, all power, all principality, the right hand of the Father. If you are here this morning and you do not have a personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, understand this, that there is no other name that can save you. And maybe, just maybe, at this moment, the hardness of your heart is softening. And you feel yourself being pulled towards Jesus. If that is you and you want to invite Jesus into your life, to turn from unbelief to belief in him, in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe you were buried, and I believe you've risen from the grave. I believe you are the Lord. I believe there is salvation in no other name, and I want to be saved. Please, Jesus, save me from the penalty of sin, the power and presence and pleasure. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is your authentic prayer, this morning the Bible declares that you have just passed from death to life. Your sins have been blotted out. Your wickedness forgiven. You are now a son or a daughter of the living God. You have just received soteria, salvation. Welcome to the family. So Lord Jesus, I pray for courage over this gathered host of witnesses. Boldness and opportunity. May we take your name to the nations and to our neighborhoods, to our offices and our classrooms, to the local Starbucks, Walmart.